Let's hear some of that movie chat. Credits roll by and I tip my hat. Credits roll by, I wanna know more right away. Let's have some of that movie chat. Credits roll by, tell me who did that. Life in the credits is where I wanna play. Welcome to Life in the Credits. This is the show where we learn about movies by chatting with people who work in the industry. I'm Susan. And I'm Ben. And today we're going to be discussing the film Back to the Future. And joining us today is our special guest, Aaron Waltke. So welcome, Aaron. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. This is fun. Yeah. Thank you for being here. We're so excited to talk to you, Aaron. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. So I'm uh, an Emmy winning and Annie nominated screenwriter. Uh, I've done mostly television, written a couple movies too. Uh, You know, I'm probably best known for working on Guillermo del Toro's Tales of Arcadia series, which is uh, Troll Hunters and Wizards on Netflix. I'm also currently working on the Star Trek Prodigy show, which is coming out on Paramount Plus and Nickelodeon later this year. And I was one of the head writers on Unikitty, for, which was a spinoff of the Lego movie that aired on Cartoon Network. Uh, so lots of fun cartoons and, you know, general sci-fi, fantasy, young adult stuff. That's my jam. That's <laughs> awesome. awesome. Yeah. So can you kind of go into any more detail about some of the projects you've worked on and what your role was, what your kind of day-to-day was like on them? Yeah, of course. So, you know, I've mostly worked in television. So television is interesting because it, by its very nature, it's very sort of hierarchical, like it's very structured because uh, as we say in the industry, you have to feed the beast because (laughs) TV has to be made. We know it's going to be airing on this date. So you have to constantly be feeding scripts into the machine so that uh, they can have all the episodes ready by the end of the, (laughs) the, uh, uh, the production cycle. So, you know, I'm sort of at the front lines. I'm the grunt who kind of is thrown as the, the D-Day doors open. I'm kind of, I have to run onto the beaches <laughs> of Normandy and be like, uh, script, story point. <laughs> so my, my job really is just making up stories. Like that's kind of my main thing. You know, I, uh, I work with a lot of incredible artists and directors um, and storyboard artists and designers and uh, musicians, all of whom, you know, have equally important roles to play in making uh, any movie or television show. But my job is literally to create a blueprint for them and say, what are we making, (laughs) folks? You know, and and that's, that's always been kind of really the thing I think I've been the best at, you know, I, I went to college for physical production and for theater and English and, and you know, the arts to become a man of letters. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and so I, I, I've kind of had my fingers in the pie of all different stages of the process. I, I worked as an editor for a little while uh, before I got into screenwriting full time. Uh, I worked in development. I've been a producer. I helped sell the show Real Housewives of Miami back Whoa. in the day. Oh, no. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, yeah, but, but you know, I, I also worked at National Lampoon. That was one of my first jobs in Los Angeles, doing uh, original content for their college television network. So kind of similar to what this is, I suppose. And for a newfangled thing called YouTube. So they were all trying to figure out how to make money by putting, you just put the videos online and then you somehow (laughs) make money off of that. I don't think they even had ad revenue back then. So we were all just kind of just shooting in the dark. I think the idea was like, if we just made enough content, maybe it would be valuable someday. (laughs) So 
that was sort of the strategy that I was hired on, you know, so I'm, I've always been kind of just making stuff, telling stories, making jokes, that sort of thing. So my current job as it stands, you know, is a screenwriter. So my job is to essentially come, usually come up with sort of a pitch of what I think could make for a good TV show or movie. And then I'll try to sell that to the powers that be. Uh, hopefully they will bite and say yes. Uh, and then it's up to me to make the dang thing. Um, so I have to come up with, uh, you know, what's a pilot script? Like who are our main characters? What are their story arcs over the course of the season? Uh, how, do the, how do they play off each other? How do they push each other's buttons? Uh, and then, you know, hopefully have like a beginning, middle and end for each character. So it all kind of comes together in some natural way and hopefully has, you know, some important thing to say about the human condition, which, you know, no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. Yeah, no pressure. So usually my day, you ask what my day looks like, mm -hmm. uh, and it just depends on what stage of the process okay. I'm in, right? So if I'm pitching, usually my day will be like, well, before I pitch, I have to figure out what I'm pitching. So my right. day before then, it would be that I have to figure out what all that stuff is, put it in a nice little document that doesn't look like it was written by an insane person. <laughs> um, and, then, and then send that out to important people, you know, decide if they want to buy it or not. And then, or at least want to hear the pitch. Then it, when I'm pitching, my day might be like, I, uh, you know, I'm pitching to Netflix at 10 o'clock. I'll have like a 20 minute presentation explaining everything about why this character relates to me, and, but is also universal and this and that. And it, how it talks about a personal thing that happened in my past, but also is totally fun and about robots. Um, <laughs> and so then hopefully either Nickelodeon or Netflix or, uh, you know, whoever is buying Paramount Plus uh, will say, yeah, we want to develop that. So then my day would be, uh, I would get notes from the, the producers and, or the development executives. They would say, hey, we like this idea. We have these questions. Can you answer them in the document? So then eventually I would write a, what's called a pilot, a pilot script. And once that's kind of locked in, then uh, we would see get a green light. If the show gets a green light, then that's when it becomes very much like a, a grindy day job where you have to feed the beast, as yeah. I was saying. In the early days, it really is just about getting the scripts out there so everybody can kind of glom onto it and figure out what they need to start building and okay. start working on. Gotcha. And um, the pilot is the uh, script for your first episode, right? That's right. The pilot is, is the first script. And then once that's agreed upon by everybody, which is no easy process, but <laughs> it, you'll get there eventually, then it gets what's called greenlit, which means we want to make the show and you're making it. Here's a sack of money. It's due in one year. <laughs> um, and so uh, at that point, then it becomes very much a, a race against time, but also a fun kind of exercise because, mm -hmm. you know, you have artists that are very specialized in their individual crafts and they all know what to do, sometimes better than I know <laughs> what to do. And so I just, I try to give them like, a, you know, a target to hit and say like, okay, uh, I want this to feel like Sherlock Holmes, but set in the 29th century, you know, or whatever. Right. And they'll be like, okay. And they'll come back two weeks later and it's like, here's Sherlock Holmes, but he's got a, a cool cybernetic implant or something <laughs> um, and i'll be like great and then we'll send that off for approval yeah my job as a showrunner really is to kind of like okay i hear what everyone is saying and usually i have to find some middle ground that satisfies everybody uh that hopefully will make it even cooler and better uh, that's the at least how it's supposed to work and then uh you know but also it doesn't upset the original vision of the show right and, I, and then that's kind of my job you know for 
in animation, it takes a very long time to make yeah. any a single episode of television. So, you know, it might t- usually takes on average eight months to a year just to make one episode of TV. Wow. So wow. they layer them on top of each other. So yeah. like I might be giving script notes on episode, you know, six, while mm-hmm. I'm also reviewing animatics. And animatic is where they cut together the storyboards into sort of like a very crude video like version of the uh of the episode uh and then my but i might also be looking at like lighting tests or or you know concept designs of what the finished thing will look like you know for episode one so i have to kind of spin a bunch of plates it's i always compare it to the old you know texaco radio hour kind of like the beginning of tv where they didn't really know how to entertain people so they would just be like uh all right and up next we have this guy and he just spins plates for an hour <laughs> and, and then they just put on like the circus bear music like and he's just spinning plates and running over to this plate and keeping it spinning another one starts to wobble and he goes over and spins that one that's basically what my my job is as a showrunner fantastic uh, and that's my job you know and then uh then once it gets into editorial and gets closer to rap then it's about like music and and you know you'd have the locked episodes but they need a score so you hear you work with the the composer to help develop a sound for this show and then sound design and then by the time it comes out the other end it's almost like magic each stage adds a little bit more and makes it a little bit more like a tv show and then yeah. by the, by the end of it you have it you, you're like wow we none of us none of us know what we're doing but somehow we made a tv show great <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's good to hear that professionals feel that way sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. So what is kind of the path you took to get to this career where you are now? What are some things you did either in high school or college or just leading up to it? Sure. Yeah. So I was always kind of that weird kid uh, that was trying to tell stories in the backyard. You know, I had creativity. I knew I liked creating stuff, but I really didn't have an outlet for it until uh, my parents got a camcorder. Uh, and you know, they just, they got it for like family events, but then of course me and the kids in the, na- the neighborhood, you know, we grew up in, in Greenwood, Indiana, which I'm, your listeners would be very familiar with, yes. but like, you know, back in the nineties, we had like dial up modems and, uh, <laughs> right. like our, my house was literally between two cornfields. So like we had basically two options for entertaining ourselves. One was like, keep the local blockbuster completely out of stock yeah. uh, of all its sci-fi and fantasy movies, you know, RIP blockbuster mm-hmm. or, but, uh, and then we started like making our own movies with the camcorder and i remember distinctly in like sixth grade we we didn't even know why we were making them we just knew we would make them and then we'd show them to like our aunts and uncles and they'd be like okay that's that's interesting uh, it's cute this it, ended yeah. be positive reinforcement they didn't know they were rewiring our brains to become filmmakers but <laughs> you know that's that's parenthood for you i suppose yeah. But I remember there, around sixth grade, we entered like this little, our church had like a competition of some kind, like a film festival. And we entered and won and we won a hundred bucks, which felt nice. like we were millionaires. Yeah, right? that's awesome. Uh, and we're like, oh, you can actually make money doing this? Um, <laughs> and so we kind of kept at it and through high school, you know, for almost every, you know, school project, if they'd let us, we would just make a short film of some yeah. kind for it. And so- You know, by the time I got into high school, I remember I was about to graduate and my parents, you know, they are not really involved in the entertainment industry. Uh, So they had this whole sort of life planned out that was like, okay, you're going to, because I had taken like a psychiatry or psychology course in in high school. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. So I'd studied psychology and I remember I, I actually signed up for psychology as my major, but I remember sitting down with my parents at one point 
and like they were like oh yeah so like how are you enjoying college and you know once you know once you get your psychology degree then you'll get your you know your master's and your yeah. and your your <laughs> phd uh and then you'll join my friend mark's uh psychiatry firm and then take it over and i was just like looking down the barrel of like the next 30 years of my life completely like pre-plan and i just quietly turned to my dad was like ah, you know i i dad i think i want to make movies for a living <laughs> it might have even been happening while I was sitting there graduating yeah. high school. Like, <laughs> like I was, I had mortarboard in hand, like the, the, the commencement speech was happening. Yeah. Um, and, and my dad just kind of, to his great credit, he mm -hmm. thought for a second, he turned to my mom and then turned back and was like, you know, as long as you do your best, give it a shot. That's what oh, college that's is great. for. That's yeah. Right. And so, yeah. So I, I wound up changing majors and, you know, I, I joined a sketch comedy troupe in college, which was really fun and weirdly uh, a great training ground for a writer's room because it was a really, it was called boy in the bubble was the name of the sketch group. It's still there. Oh. Uh, I think it's the oldest sketch comedy group in, in Indiana university. It's a great training for a writer's room because there was like 20 people in the group. It was unwieldy amount of people mm -hmm. mainly because people you know got busy or what have you um and couldn't attend every week but if you wanted to get your sketches into the show not every, we didn't have room for everyone so you would bring right. it into the group you would assign it you'd cast it you'd rehearse it and you'd present it to the group and only only the best sketches that got the most votes got into the show while i was at college i started doing a lot of work in documentaries which is kind of like how i got some experience enough to eventually work a little bit in reality TV uh, for a little bit when I was in LA. I worked for WTIU, which is the, the PBS station there and, nice. and did a couple of uh, PBS documentaries there. And, and uh, yeah, and then right around then, uh, you know, we all graduated and I realized that uh, I, I needed to move to Los Angeles. Yeah. So luckily, a number of my friends who I've been doing this stuff with said, yeah, we want to we want to try it, too. And we all moved out to L.A. together. One of them was a really great friend, still, still a great friend, Jess Patel. She's a producer and director out here now. But while I was in college, she had produced a very low budget indie horror film, like a feature film cool. that was shot up in South Bend. Um, oh, called Joshua. Um, okay. And so I, I, it was a very, it was so small, in fact, that I started as an intern. And then, but by the end of it, I became bet, like really good friends with like the producers, the, the lead actors, uh, the, <laughs> the director. Uh, and I, I think I, my end credit was like Dolly Grip. I was like, nice. physically part of the camera crew. Yeah. The That's cool. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, I, you know, I knew her and a couple of those guys. And then I, one of my friends who I was in sketch comedy group had graduated the year earlier and had gotten a job at National Lampoon. Oh, okay. And so I, I moved to LA um, and said like, Hey, you know, you don't have to pay me anything, but I know basically nobody. Uh, and you're the closest I've heard of any of our friends who is making comedy for a living. Yeah. So I would love if I could just come in and shadow for a couple of weeks and just meet people. And so he took to his credit, he talked to them and said, like, yeah, I can't promise anything, but come on in. It's cool. And then when I showed up, I realized that they had this huge stack of, uh, of, what were then called mini DV tapes, but all you need to know is like, they were basically just tapes of, of sketches that had been shot, but not, they didn't know anybody who, nobody there could edit uh, or, wow. or really produce. Wow. Uh, so they, they were all just like 
comedy writers that were just wanting to make this stuff, but then they didn't have anybody to actually like finish it. Right. So I just said, I was sitting there. I was like, you know, I could just bring in my rig and see if I could do something with that. And they're like, please do. Wow. And so I, I just digitized all the tapes, you know, spent a few days, cut it all together, used my comedy chops that I'd learned from both working in college and performing sketches and whatnot, comedy timing, et cetera. And cut together a little, you know, four minute sketch out of it. Uh, we uploaded it to the National Lampoon YouTube channel and it went viral. Uh, and then the, the editor in chief of National Lampoon kind of came down into the trenches and was like, so uh, you just did all that by yourself, huh? <laughs> so, and I was like, yeah, I did. He was like, good job. Uh, and then <laughs> the director of development, Justin Canoe, um, who I, I believe wrote a draft of the new Coming to America movie. Uh, he, he came in and was like, look, I was invited to do this like pitch fest, but I don't want to do it, but maybe you could go hear some pitches and, but also just, you know, do like a fun sort of man on the street kind of sketch, you know, sort of Conan. And I loved Conan O'Brien. Yeah, I went to see a taping of his in New York when I was in high school and it, it blew my mind. Yeah. Um, so like, I was like, yeah, let's do it. And so we went down to a little fun, little man on the street sort of sketch comedy at this pitch fest, which is truly insane and a story for another day. Um, and that went viral too. And so then I basically went to them and was like, look, clearly, you know, you need somebody like me who both has comedy shops, but also knows how to make stuff. Hire me. You don't have to pay me a lot. Just pay me so yeah. I can stay here. And they did. Um, and that awesome. was, that was kind of like my first job in LA was making comedy for National Lampoon. And it was a pretty, pretty amazing experience. Yeah. It's a very weird place for a lot of reasons, but uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. That's fantastic. Yeah. Awesome. Very, very cool. Aaron, can you tell us what it's like to win an Emmy? It's uh, surreal is probably the yeah. easiest way to say it. Like the, the other thing I will say is like your adrenaline is so high, you know, in those moments, awards are fantastic. They, they don't, they don't necessarily mean everything, you know, as they say, an honor, it's an honor to be nominated and whatnot. And there's, there's all kinds of reasons why great shows maybe don't win or don't get nominated, but it is still cool to win. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> and yeah. what show was that? That was Troll Hunters, uh, which was from Guillermo del Toro and DreamWorks Animation uh, and is on Netflix now. Check it out. Very cool. We were sitting in the audience there at in Pasadena at the, I believe, the Pasadena Civic Auditorium, which is where the daytime Emmys are held. And, you know, our category came up. And I, the whole time I was just trying to stay relatively, you know, zen and be like, and telling myself, oh, we're not going to win. It's fine. Mm -hmm. It's cool. We're just cool to be here. Yeah. And then, and then when they called our names, it felt almost like a mistake because I had so convinced <laughs> myself that it was like not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, that suddenly there's a really funny video where I suddenly am like, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> and, and I'm just <laughs> like delirious. And it goes by so quickly. It's like, yeah. it, and a lot of other people I've talked to that have won Emmys, they had the exact same experience where like when you're on TV, it feels like this big grand epic sort of adventure and they, they're swept up to the stage and they have this heartfelt thing. When you're actually in the middle of it, it's it feels like you're suddenly thrust on stage and you forgot your lines oh. <laughs> and, and you're just sort of like tap dancing and hoping nobody notices. We went up on the stage, accept our speech, and then they usher you backstage. 
And then what they, nobody told us, but there's actually like this whole like gauntlet of like press conferences and stuff oh, that, really? that you immediately are shoved into. So it was like so <laughs> surreal. So like suddenly we're, we're shoved into this line. There's other, this line of these other people like taking their Emmy and just like walking away. Oh my and, God. and then they, they suddenly you're handed an Emmy and then you're shoved into this other room. And then there's just like cameras and lights and like, so tell us about your Emmy. What do you think? What's it like winning an Emmy? And we're just like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, it's just like three or four of those. And you don't have, you don't even know who you're talking to yeah. and you're just asking, you're answering questions and holding an Emmy and just trying to not make your company look bad. And then uh, at the end of it, they like kind of shove like a, a bag of snacks and, and, and <laughs> Gatorade in your hand. And then you just, just shoved out a side door. <laughs> and then suddenly we were like in an alleyway outside of the, <laughs> of the convention center. And we're like, what, what happened? <laughs> and then we saw some other people walking around. So then they were, you walked around to the front of the building and then they had like little cocktails okay. uh, lounge set up up front. But it definitely looked like we just were like, get out of here. They just yeah. like, out in a, like a dark street <laughs> holding, holding a statuette what I, what i'm most appreciative of i think is just that the show got recognized because yeah. there's a lot of really talented people that poured their heart and soul into it and it was really wonderful that uh, the academy and and the the animation and tv community recognized that that sounds both amazing and just crazy. I love that they just <laughs> hand you a bag of snacks. Like, right. oh yeah, you're gonna. And the gator, <laughs> like, the you need to rehydrate. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, I mean, you forget, man. It's like mm-hmm. it's like you're when you're a bridesmaid or something. Yes. Like, don't, don't lock your knees so you don't right. pass out. <laughs> yeah, same thing. This is a question I like to ask. Do you have any either favorite moments from your career um, or any moments where you're just like, I cannot believe that this is the job I do for a living. Any that really stand out in your brain? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, winning the Emmy was probably right. one one moment. Yeah. Another moment, I remember in college, I, watching Pan's Labyrinth and mm. thinking like, wow, this guy, Guillermo, is, uh, he's making stuff that that I, you know, would love to make someday. Mm-hmm. You know, he he became very quickly like one of kind of like my personal vision board heroes. Yeah. And then when I got the call that I got to, I'm going to get to work with him, it was amazing. And I remember this is, I suppose, maybe 2014 or something like that. Uh, my first script that I had co-written for Troll Hunters, we sent it off just for everybody to read. And then we got an email back from Guillermo del Toro. And he's like, this was wonderful. I just have a couple of little things. And then we opened it. And it's not that he had cut any lines or made any huge notes. He just co-wrote with us and just wrote wow. like a few like the, you know and he he left most of our stuff intact and just added like a scene here or a line there and i was like and i remember reading that and it was just before we left for christmas and i was just like guys i know we're all supposed to like play it cool but is it kind of amazing that we're like writing a script with guillermo del toro yeah. right now yes <laughs> yes it is amazing <laughs> And yeah, and, and you know, I was so lucky that years later, when I was show running on Wizards, uh, I got to work with him like every day. We'd call him like a colleague. For about every two weeks, we'd call them Guillermo days. He would come in for like eight hours a day, and we would just sit with him and pitch him our ideas and collaborate and show him animatics we were working on. And and he was always just so encouraging and enthusiastic. I remember the first time that he did that for Troll Hunters, like it was the first time he had seen any of the animatics and he was only supposed to watch, I think the first two episodes, but he was so enthralled. He kept like turning back to us and just like his eyes um, like agape. Yeah. And, and he was just sort of, and he said more, 
play the next one, play the next one. That's so and cool. And then and then he played. He watched episode three, and then he watched episode four, and then he's like, "Hold on a second. And then he he pulled out his phone and called his assistant and said, "Cancel my flight to Toronto." Oh my god! I I'm staying here. I want to keep watching the show, and so he canceled the show and he binge watched like everything we had, even stuff that all the way cut, catching him all the way up to like stuff we were in progress. And he said like, "You know, you did a great job. Like, you know, you've you this is." I couldn't tear my eyes away, which to hear that from one of my personal heroes, yeah. that was pretty surreal, I think. Um, and the idea, but that's Guillermo for you. He's, he, as I came to learn, he's a very giving artist. He's a big kid at heart and he wants nothing more than to help you create a vision that you both can be proud of. I was very grateful to learn from the masters, yeah. you know, on, on that show, both from Guillermo and also Mark Guggenheim, who created the Arrowverse on CW. Right. Yeah, and you know the the Hageman brothers, who I'm very proud to call friends and colleagues now. Who uh, they wrote the first draft of the Lego Movie and Hotel Transylvania, and created Ninjago on Cartoon Network, uh, and wrote Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark uh, awesome. and the new Croods movie. Uh, like they, like I, I got to work with all of them firsthand, and and you know I got to learn from them, but I also got to show them my stuff, and they yeah. were duly impressed, which is surreal and wonderful, and I'm yeah. very grateful for that time. That's awesome. That's really, really cool. And how cool. Yeah. How cool to get to work with people that you had been looking up to and like watching their stuff. And then all of a sudden you're in the room with them. That's crazy. So what advice do you have for people who want to get into a profession like yours, either writing or, you know, working on content like this? The biggest one I would say is keep making stuff, right? Because each time you're going to, even as you're starting out, you'll probably have some spark of inspiration that will kind of carry you through to to finish your script or make your short film or TikTok video or whatever, it, but keep making stuff because each one, and try to make each one a little bit better than the last, you know, try to learn from your mistakes on the first couple, but also learn from what was working and think about what you want to say about the world. Cause I think that's a mistake that a lot of newer writers will make is like, they'll watch their, all, all these cool Quentin Tarantino movies or whatever. And then they'll just make a movie. That's just them driving down the street, you know, talking about, uh, you know, Royale of cheese or whatever, but ultimately not have anything to say because, you know, I, most people when they start writing are young and they don't ha think they have a lot to say yet, but I'm here to tell you, you do, you have a lot of thoughts. You have a lot of ideas about the world that other people might not know about. Just keep, trying to find your voice is the most important thing. And you find that by collaborating with other people, find other people that are as talented or hopefully more talented than you are and do stuff with them, you know, put on a play, uh, make a TikTok, whatever, like figure out what you are good at, what you like, you know, originally I thought I just wanted to direct um, and maybe, maybe I'd co-write, but I wasn't sure if I was a strong enough as a, of a writer on my own. But gradually, I came to realize that actually I'm I'm a, perhaps a better writer than a director. You know, I just had to kind of find the confidence to to ex follow my instincts and make the things that I thought that I want the stories I wanted to tell and the way I wanted to tell them. And you know, when I started showing them to other people, especially professionals here in LA, they're like, "Oh, this is very unique." And I was like, "Really? I'm just kind of doing it the way I thought I was supposed to do it." And they're like, "No, I mean, you're doing it the way you do it." And that's, that's what sets you apart. Fantastic. Let's get to our featured film. Today we're discussing the 1985 film, Back to the Future. 
It was written by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, and it was directed by Robert Zemeckis, and it stars Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Lee Thompson, Crispin Glover, and Thomas F. Wilson. It was also produced by Steven Spielberg. It was nominated for four Oscars, including Best Sound, Best Music, Best Writing, and won the Oscar for Best Effects, Sound Effects, Editing. Susan, before we get too deep into it, can you give us a quick breakdown? What was this movie about? Yes. So at the beginning of this movie, we meet Marty McFly. We also meet his eccentric scientist friend, Doc Brown. And Marty McFly is just like a normal high schooler in 1985. He's just trying to go on this trip with his girlfriend, but he meets Doc Brown in this parking lot to see his newest invention. And it turns out to be, surprise, surprise, based on the title, a time machine. So they give it a really quick test with Einstein the dog, who thankfully comes back safely a minute later. (laughs) And then disaster, Doc Brown gets attacked by this terrorist group he has stolen the plutonium from. And uh, Marty McFly has to escape. So he jumps in this time machine, gets transported back to 1955, promptly screws up a lot of stuff, and then has one week to fix it all before he has to head back to the future (laughs) to 1985. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Fantastic. And Aaron, you chose this movie for us to discuss. Why did you pick this movie? Well, first of all, it's like my favorite film of all time. Like at any time, it's eminently watchable. I can, I can see it. I've seen it a million times and I can see it a million times more. Uh, I can, I can basically run the whole movie through in my head, like beginning to end uh, and much to the annoyance of people when I pitch like hyper specific <laughs> moments and it's like, oh, it's just like that moment when Marty McFly springs up and Earth Angel plays. <laughs> um, it's funny because I know exactly the moment and not because we just watched it. Yeah, well, it's, it's, that's the thing. It's like it, it toes, Zemeckis is a brilliant caricature artist and that it, the caricatures aren't so over the top that they're unrelatable mm-hmm. they're, they they toe the line just a little bit but don't totally break the, or shatter the reality of the story so like you have these the the, the most archetypical bully of all time which yes. is yep. Biff who you know was in some ways a character that we found some inspirations for Steve from Troll Hunters in cool. uh, which by the way we we did hire Thomas L. F Wilson as well uh, for Troll Hunters he oh, plays nice. the coach coach Lawrence in our show. fantastic i hear he's, he's like amazing. the nicest guy in real life he's very nice and he's an amazing voiceover artist but what i love about this movie is it's this perfect balance of plot and story mm-hmm. and like what do i mean by that it's like, so plot is just in storytelling is typically just the stuff that happens. If a story is very plotty, it means it's very, a lot of dense, like, okay, now we have to, we have to find the, the magic key of Ephiroth in order to get to the, the gym of Ding Dong uh, or whatever. It's the, it's the, it's the MacGuffins. It's the, right. it's the physical stuff that's happening. But the story is, is what's the emotional journey of our characters. And I feel like it's a great kind of balance of those two items because the the plot is the fun crunchy timey wimey time travel stuff which Mm -hmm. is like what happens if you go back and you stop yourself from being born it's it's sort of the the classic grandfather paradox that uh, is prominent in a lot of science fiction that stuff is very tantalizing they kind of invent their own rules of of sort of like there's a slow motion erasure of the future that will slowly roll back to you and so there's a a literal ticking clock uh, a clock tower in fact (laughs) that they have to try to get everything in place for uh before you know all is lost so that's beautiful plot construction like you you understand the stakes very clearly but you know it's it also 
it's exciting and interesting. And but then the story is also equally fascinating, which was it's predicated on this idea of like if you went back in time and met your parents as teenagers, would you be friends with them? Yeah. Like, can you relate to them? <laughs> and that's ultimately what the story about is about is Marty McFly coming to realize that his parents, who he always saw as sort of like these, like, oh man, I'm stuck with this kind of like loser mm-hmm. family or whatever, like that they're real people. And I think that that's, that's something that we can all relate to at, yeah. at a point when we, we stop seeing our parents as sort of antagonists or obstacles and start see them as, seeing them as, as humans <laughs> you know it's like seeing your dad cry for the first time you know you, you always think of them as these sort of impermeable people mm-hmm. uh, uh these sort of vanguards of of uh of rules and <laughs> in, in your house and how to how to survive as as yeah. a teenager which you think is totally unfair until you realize that they were they were went through it all and they're just trying to look out for you mm-hmm. and it, what i love about back to the future is they kind of invert that where Marty suddenly finds himself in that very role for his parents, yeah. right. trying trying to help them not only to preserve himself, but winds up helping them become better people. That's I think that's really a beautiful kind of uh, sentiment, is like because Marty's growth. People sometimes some people say, "Oh, Marty doesn't have an arc," but it, that's not true. Mm-hmm. I think his arc is coming to realize that his parents were people too, and he himself has room to grow. Yeah. You know, even though he thinks that he's fit, got it all figured out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and one scene, speaking to like his growth, one scene I really like um, is when he's sitting in the cafeteria with his dad when they're back in time and his dad's writing stories and he's like, oh, you should, can I see him? He's like, no, I don't show anybody my stories. I couldn't handle the rejection. And he repeats that exact line from the beginning when Marty's talking about his band. I think that really shows a huge, a very obvious moment where Marty's like, oh, I know exactly what you mean. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, That's, that's another thing that I I rewatched it recently. And it was like, Mm -hmm. and it's like, it's not just about Marty being chicken, which is what people always think of because they kind of added that in the later. Right. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. But it it really is. It it really is about him kind of learning to that his parent, his dad probably went through the same thing he did. And he's trying to prevent his son from experiencing that. Just really beautifully done. I always love those moments of that where you have kind of a rhyme in Uh in screenwriting terms. Those are called a callback. Yeah. Um, And it's it's basically the bread and butter of, of mm-hmm. making a movie. And there are so many clever things in this movie. It's so well made. Um, I've seen this movie a lot. Uh, this is one of the classic, like <laughs> my, my childhood movies growing up and I've watched it many, many times. And then we watched it today and I, I love it. Um, but it's so well made, even like, you know, on rewatches, you don't catch some of the stuff that you catch the first time, you know, like when he goes back in time and, you know, he ends up on that farm and he drives out of there and, and runs over one of the trees. Yes. Um, and yeah. then that actually in the future changes the name of the mall from, yeah, twin, from twin, twin Pines, pines to, to Lone, Lone pine. pine. Yeah. Yes. You know, and, and it's stuff like that you don't catch the first time, but later on you're like, oh man, that's so clever. Mm-hmm. It's so tightly wound and constructed. And it's so clear that they had fun kind of like thinking about wherever every single little yeah. background detail, they just keep going back and and like a Gordian knot, like winding yeah. it even tighter of like how the right. entire history of Hill Valley kind of is predicated on uh, the the events of these three movies. It's so it's so beautifully done that it, you can always go back and find something new. Yeah. You know, like like there's there's this whole storyline of like Mayor Red 
you know, who is the mayor in 1955, but he's sort of a dirtbag and no one mm -hmm. likes him. And then you find out he's, uh, he is in fact the homeless person who's on the bench in 1985. Right. Uh, who's like crazy drunk drivers. <laughs> like that's the same guy. But it's, but that's like this whole arc that's just told like in background signs. Yeah. Like you don't know it. Like, and, and, you know, and it even has a, a, another part where, where uh, the, the, the diner uh, janitor is like is like Goldie Wilson. I'm gonna be yeah. mayor someday. Right. Mayor, I like the sound of that. Like <laughs> it's so good. I love all of it. Yeah, I love this movie. It's very very funny, and Christopher Lloyd plays it so well. And just to be this silly scientist, you know, uh, wacky guy. Um, but his expressions when he he sets uh, some rags in his garage on fire or when at the end of it, he's trying to like hook up the lines. So, you know, right before the lightning bolt strikes, his expressions are so funny. Um, yeah. He finds such a, a great character. Yeah, that that end sequence when they're trying to get the uh, when Doc is is hanging from the watchtower and it's it's that there's that great homage to Harold Lloyd and, yeah. and such. But uh, there's this I concept of screenwriting that's sort of like don't write in in where events are just like and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens always have it be like a but or a therefore and that whole end sequence is a great like the best example of that i can think of where it's like you know doc gets the you know loops around and manages to to plug in the, the device but he accidentally unplugs it on the other end because it gets caught on a tree Oh no. So then <laughs> therefore he has to pull out his, his gloves or whatever, and be the reluctant sort of uh, foolhardy adventurer that, that uh, he was advising Marty not to be, mm -hmm. and then grows that way. And he zip lines down and manages to get it uh, untangled just in time to click it back together at the very moment yeah. that, that DeLorean shoots back in time. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a, it's really beautifully done where, uh, it's called rising action and escalation where one, one problem is overcome but causes another one and another one, another one, another one. And that's, that's what you want in a climax uh, yeah. finale of a film. And ultimately that probably leads to his decision to say, it's okay if I read this letter from Marty, which saves his life, right? Yeah, he could be, yeah, he would be dead if it weren't for hit a little bit of Marty run, rubbing off on Doc yeah. and him being just a little bit more reckless. Exactly. You know? Uh, and it's so beautifully done uh, where every character, even the so-called mentor characters, have a small little emotional arc. I don't care that I never learned how Marty and Doc met. Like, yeah. you just get it. Like, he's his assistant or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I even counted, like, do we ever find out how they became friends? Men's like, no. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> does it matter? Yeah, and just like that scene you just mentioned, I've seen this movie a few times, and still every time I watch that end scene with the clock tower, I feel the same amount of tension. And I'm, I remind myself, like, like, no, you know what happens. Like, you know how this ends, but it's still, it's so well done. But I'm exciting. still, like, sitting there, like, oh, my God, is he going to make it? You know, yeah. we all know the end. <laughs> and what other movie has Huey Lewis as a gym teacher? <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Hey, let's talk about with the music for a minute i mean everything in this movie is so well done the makeup the costumes the you know the directing there's a bunch of beautiful tracking shots um but the music in particular is very good mm -hmm. now oh yeah um, alan silvestri is a true genius yeah uh, you know yeah. he scored a lot of really great films from that era all the way up until today he's still active as a yeah composer. if you like the marvel movies um he was 
one of their main composers. Yeah. Just in terms of that light motif of just like mm-hmm. those little callbacks and, and you know, like it, even just that little, yeah. you know, just that, just little things like that to suddenly make it feel alive and magical you know, yeah. uh, with its own magical uh, sort of film language. I thought he did an incredible job. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And actually for back to the future day. So uh, 30 in back to the future two, they go to the future, right? Which was mm-hmm. 2015. Um, and for Back to the Future Day, the Indianapolis Symphony actually had a, a, a an event where they showed the movie, but the live symphony played the score for the film. Amazing! And yeah, w- cool. Susan and I went and were able to see it. So we actually saw Back to the Future with a live orchestra cool. doing the music, and it was incredible. Yeah. I would, man, I would die to do that. <laughs> I, I I saw that with Indiana Jones. That's oh, cool. cool. Fantastic. Yeah, I think um, the the L.A. Philharmonic yeah. did the live score for. Um, not the last crusade uh it was the first one raiders yeah Yeah. and it was it was glorious i absolutely loved it but but to do that for back to the future i i'm very jealous of you supremely (laughs) jealous why else i'm a big indiana just fan too so the scene where marty gets to school late and the principal's like you're you're hanging out with that scientist again aren't you the idea that a teacher would be upset that a student was hanging out with a scientist (laughs) after school versus like drinking or like just goofing around is ridiculous yeah <laughs> yeah you're a slacker yeah you're he was a slacker and you're gonna be a slacker yeah. <laughs> this is like a perfect 80s just uh-huh. antagonist and you know uh marty mcfly as a character versus you know the antagonist being biff tannen like what a easy character to hate right biff tannen yeah. is such yeah. an iconic really bully but the scene where he tries to run him over and, and marty's on the skateboard and he's trying to push him in the manure and then he just runs over the the car and lands on the skateboard while Biff drives into the manure is so yeah. good. It's, it's such- every every single moment was so meticulously storyboarded in advance and choreographed that it you can yeah. just feel the construction of the film. And it's not a bad thing. It actually yeah. adds to the sort of the the almost the the fantasy quality, the magical realism of it. Uh, and I will always love that sort of meticulousness. And I, I try to bring something of that evoke that kind of Amblin sort of wonder in everything that I work on because it's it's just such a specific aesthetic that I can never get enough of. Fantastic. Did you guys have a favorite scene in the film? I think mine was definitely in the cafeteria with his dad like about the story. Yeah. It was just a really nice moment where it kind of turned. <laughs> yeah. That was good. Yeah. I love the you're my density. <laughs> uh, uh, I really love I think Truly, though, I think the the Earth Angel sequence is going to, it's so completely warped my point of view as a storyteller. Basically, the sequence of uh, to where finally the worm turns and his dad punches out Biff, you know, finds his inner strength up through the the oh oh crap like he actually no uh, they he they haven't kissed yet and then he mm-hmm. almost dies and then and the, but then George manages to find his spine and say hey yeah. I'm, you're not cutting in and then they they kiss and then spring yeah and it's just like <laughs> oh my god it's like 15 things that I wanted to happen yes. all perfectly co- uh, colliding in this one incredible moment and yeah. it's it's one of the best third acts I think of any film ever made. Mm-hmm fantastic yeah it's really good and i love i mean just to reference one more time the clock tower scene is so exciting it's just i mean it's naturally with the countdown 
and you know things are going wrong but they all pull it together last second just a fantastic really fun scene really well done and then doc brown dancing in the street afterwards it's just yes while that muted trumpet's like (laughs) oh my god i love it it's just like every one of those scenes just like bam 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 just gives me goosebumps just talking about it right (laughs) guys it's a pretty good film We like to finish up our show today with a game that we're calling Back in Time. Aaron, you're playing against Susan. So here are the rules. I'm going to describe the end of famous movies straight from their Wikipedia pages. As soon as you know the movie, shout it out. If you're wrong, the other person gets a chance to guess. If neither of you knows the film after I give you the ending, I'm going to work backwards from the end of the film until you're able to name it. I have seven movies for you to identify. The first person to name four wins our prize. Susan, what's our prize? Uh, they're in production, so it's going to be some kind of merch. We just got our logo done and everything. Oh, wow. Yeah. I hope I win. I want yeah. a mug or something. Okay. <laughs> cool. Perfect. <laughs> All right. And in honor of Back to the Future, each of these films prominently feature time travel. All right. So are you guys ready? I'm ready. I think I'm, I'm, I'm emotionally ready. Fantastic. <laughs> All right, here's your first movie. Okay. As Marty and Jennifer examine the DeLorean wreckage. Back to the Future 3. Yes, that is correct. Back (laughs) to the Future 3. Aaron, you have one point. Very good. That was an easy one. Yeah, I've actually never seen Back to the Future 3. I I know what we're doing after this. (laughs) Spoiler alert for Back to the Future 3. I didn't even spoil the rest of it. That's yeah. fine. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry for all the spoilers for this. Guys. There's going to be a lot of spoilers. I'll answer as quickly as I can so as to not to spoil okay. them too bad. Right, this, this next one, I think you'll get quickly, too. Okay. Following Stark's funeral, Thor appoints Valkyrie. Uh, Endgame. Marvel Endgame. Endgame. Avengers Endgame Avengers is correct. Endgame. Very good, Aaron. That's two points. Number three, Susan, you ready? I'm ready. All right. The protagonist, Neil, and Ives break up the algorithm and part ways the protagonist notices that Neil's oh um oh my god what is that movie called neil's wearing a red trinket neil reveals that he's recruited by the protagonist in the no, future and the mission is from oh. his perspective the end of a long friendship. oh my god yep it's i'm blanking out i know that yes Susan gets the point <laughs> I knew the movie, but I was blanking on the name. It took a long time for me to pull it out of my brain. Susan gets a point. Oh my so, God. So it's two, one? Yes. Okay. Aaron has two. Susan has one. All right. No, I knew the name. Uh, good job. Yeah, yeah. You got it. Fair and <laughs> yeah. square. That, that's a hard one to pull out. Yeah, it is. Next one. Back at the present, Adam, Nick, and Jacob discover that Lou has changed history by founding the immensely successful Lugal which affords him a a hot tub time machine. Hot tub time machine is correct. I haven't seen that movie in so long. Three points to Aaron, one point to Susan. If Aaron gets this correct, he wins. This is the last one, okay. Not not the last movie, but- Right, but the last point he needs. Right. Okay. Here we go. (laughs) Tense. Donnie returns home as a vortex forms over his house. Oh, Donnie Darko. Donnie Darko is correct. (laughs) Congratulations, Congratulations. You've won. Now, would you like to hear the other movies? Yeah, Yeah. let's play. Let's do the rest of them just for fun. Yeah. Phenomenal. All right, next one. Okay. The Model 101 asks Sarah to assist in lowering it into the vat of molten steel since it's unable to self- That would be Terminator 2, right? Yes. And what is the subtitle to that? 
Uh, Judgment Day. Yes, Terminator <laughs> 2 Judgment Day is correct. Uh, such a good movie. All right, last one. Okay. Susan, you have one point. I know. Try to get one. I know, I have one point. Sorry, this is, I feel like this is unfair because I literally am like the time travel guy. <laughs> <laughs> all right <laughs> this is just for I've fun i've seen most of these movies i should know them i think you've probably seen all but of I, I actually get like hired on shows to be right. the time yeah. travel expert this so is actually like... your job that's true <laughs> it's all right phil wakes the next morning to i got you babe but finds rita is still that in would bed. be groundhog day groundhog oh. day is correct <laughs> groundhog day i've seen but not since i think i saw i got you babe yeah aaron thank you so much for joining us yes. would you like to plug anything before we let you go yeah well first i just want to say thank you so much for having me this has yeah. been a delight really uh, really fun yeah thank uh, you. so yeah as far as things to plug i would i do have a show that's coming up that i'm uh, a producer and writer on uh it is star trek prodigy it's uh, the newest installment in the star trek franchise it is going to be airing on paramount plus and nickelodeon uh, later this year. I hope you all check it out. It's really cool. Very cinematic. If you like Amblin and if you like Star Trek, and especially if you like science fiction, check out Star Trek Prodigy. It okay. stars uh, Kate Mulgrew, from, uh, who plays is reprising her role as a holographic version of Captain Catherine Janeway, oh. and has a lot of really cool stuff in store. So I hope you'll all watch it. Uh, you can all... You can also follow me uh, on Twitter and Instagram at GoodAaron, G-O-O-D-A-A-R-O-N. Uh, and you'll find all kinds of cool updates there for my stuff. I have all kinds of secret stuff in the works, so oh, I can't cool. wait for you to, to hear about it. Fantastic, awesome. Aaron. That's so exciting. Yeah. I'm a big Star Trek fan, so <laughs> I'm super excited to watch that show. Thank you so much. Life in the Credits is hosted and produced by me, Susan Swarner. And me, Ben Bloom. It's executive produced by Michelle Levin. The music is written and performed by Steve Trowbridge. You can hear more of Steve's music at TrowbridgeSounds.com. The show logo is created by Melissa Durkin. If you'd like to support Life in the Credits and get access to exclusive perks, you can do so at Patreon.com. If you'd like to follow or get a hold of us, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Life in the Credits or shoot us an email at LifeInTheCredits at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I love that you can do a bag of snacks. Like, right. oh yeah, you're gonna. And a gator, like, you alley. need to rehydrate. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah. I mean, you forget, man. It's like mm -hmm. it's like you're when you're a bridesmaid or something. Yes. Like, don't, don't lock your knees so you don't right. pass out. <laughs> yeah. Same thing. <laughs>